And uh, I invite the rest of you as we continue in our time of worship to join me in chapter 4 of John uh, this morning. Now, there are a lot of different stories uh, out there. And one of the stories that many of us have grown up with in time, different things, is Winnie the Pooh. Um, Winnie the Pooh is not in chapter 4. I will, I will, just to clarify, sorry to, to frustrate you there, Calder. But um, in one of many stories of, from the Hundred Acre Wood, uh, Christopher Robin and crew decide that they're going to set off on an adventure. You know, uh, and they're going to search for the North Pole. And so at one point along the way, in the midst of the journey, young Rue falls into a stream and needs to be rescued. He can't get out by himself. Pooh Bear eventually uses a pole to fish his friend out of the water. And once everything's settled and the, the emergency is passed, they all kind of stand around and they start discussing what just happened. And as they're talking... Christopher Robin notices that Pooh is standing there with that pole still in his paw. And he asks him, Pooh, where did you get that pole? And he replies, well, I just found it earlier, and I thought it might be useful. And Christopher Robin excitingly declares, Pooh, the expedition is over. You found the North Pole. And he says, oh, I did? And eventually, Christopher Robin takes that pole. And he sinks it into the ground, and they hang a flag on it with this message. The North Pole, discovered by Pooh, Pooh found it. They all go home. The quest was successful for the North Pole. The reason I share from that story is that we all are on various journeys. We're all on different paths. And I, what I watch is, and I even look at my own life at times and, and things, is I notice that we can become so eager to declare victory in the journey that sometimes we're often easily satisfied. That, that we don't continue seeking, but we just say, okay, I found it, and we're good to go. And what, we, what happens in the midst of, of that is because we've substituted what we're really seeking for for something that's easily found is that we're often not really satisfied. Because we didn't seek and find what we were really looking for. In Jeremiah chapter 2, God declares, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. I want you to keep that in mind as we look at this story in John chapter 4. Now, 
in chapter 3, Jesus had just had a discussion with Nicodemus. And you're all familiar with the story and, uh, of what happened. Nicodemus comes at night and questions Jesus. And, and we get quite an interaction about new birth and everlasting life and all these different things in spirit. And there's some condemnation how you as a teacher can teach and not understand these things. But we never really get a full conclusion of how that encounter ends. It just goes on that Jesus ends up moving on down uh, from Jerusalem into the Judean countryside with his disciples. He encounters John the Baptist. And this is where John declares, uh, he must increase while I decrease. And it doesn't seem long from there that Jesus leaves the Judean area, the southern kingdom, and begins up to his journey to Galilee, where he will carry out most of his ministry. The reason I, we have to understand that background of where they've been and where they're going is because the direct route, you know, most of us, when, when I look on my maps program or you know, if, if, you, if you're old enough, you remember what it was like. We used to have those big old, I had a state farm map book. And I was trying to plot my way. And I didn't usually plot it by going out of the way. I would plot my course quickest between two points. But the, the quickest between two points between the, the southern kingdom of Judah and Galilee, I mean, in Jerusalem and all that area, to Galilee in the north goes through a place called Samaria. Samaria is part of the northern kingdom. If, if you remember uh, the northern kingdom, uh, it was a, Israel was kind of a split kingdom between the north and the south. And so what most people would do, instead of going through Samaria, they would go out of their way. They would take extra days and cross the Jordan River and go up that way and then come back in. Trying to avoid the Sumerians. They did that because for over 700 years, and really the, it goes way beyond, it, it goes back to after the time of Solomon that the, the kingdom split again. He had the north versus the south. But for 700 plus years, after the time of the exile, the southern kingdoms in Jerusalem, they go down when Babylon into Babylon. And they're overtaken. And, and what happens is the northern kingdoms, they didn't all go with them. Some of them, especially this area, stayed and what happens is the Assyrians came in and conquered the land. And what ha in the midst of that, the southern kingdoms, even though they had gone to Babylon, they kept their identity. They kept their practices. They kept in what they believed was pure until their return. While the northern kingdoms, what happens is Assyria brings in five other nations. And the Samaritan people start marrying and having kids and doing things with these other nations. And in worship, they also not only keep their identity, but they start to assimilate other practices, other gods in the midst of it. 
And so as far as the people of Judah, they were impure. They were half-breeds. The Samaritans were to be looked down on because they'd lost their identity. They had lost who they were. They had been compromised. And so there's some significant differences that, that have happened. I mean, you're talking 700 plus years of conflict. The Samaritans had held a Torah-centered view based around uh, the patriarchs. They had centered their worship on a Mount Gerizim. And they looked for a Messiah figure that would resemble Moses in the law. Jerusalem, though, had become, after the time of David, the center for the south. And they, they looked and included the prophets in the midst of their traditions. They had centered their worship in Jerusalem. And they were looking for a Messiah king more in the line of David with that military power. Well, the conflicts went back and forth. And they kind of came to a climax in, in 128 years before Jesus when the Jewish high priest um, from the south went up to the north with the armies. And they utterly destroyed the Samaritan capital and their temple in Mount Gerizim. So this is all in the background in the constant understanding of the culture of, of what is going on. There is a whole lot of religious differences and racial animosity toward one another. So Jesus, it says, at the very beginning of chapter 4, it says he needed to go through Samaria. The reason isn't to save time. They're used to going out of their way. The reason is, is reminded that Jesus is on a mission that embraces all people. He's there to unite all of Israel. And it, he had just had a conversation in chapter 3 with Nicodemus where he says, God so loved, not Judah, but God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. So Jesus and his disciples are traveling through, not around, they're traveling through Samaria, and they come to this town called Sychar. People don't know exactly where Sychar is. They, they're kind of wondering if it's the old capital, but renamed, and it's noon, it's hot, they're tired. And it says that Jesus takes a break at the well outside of town and sends the disciples in to get food. And as he sits there, it says a Samaritan woman comes to the well to get water. And to the woman's surprise, a conversation begins. Now, in the history of Jewish tradition and stories, and this is a loaded situation, and the readers of John know this because there's a long history of a man coming to a well, meeting a young woman, that ends up with a marriage. But the well was, was a central place of the community. And here, here unlike with Nicodemus, 
We don't have a name. We're, we're only provided that it's a Samaritan woman. But like all of us, this woman has a history. There are things that have been done and things left undone. There's some good, there's some not so good. There are moments of success and pride. There's also moments of guilt and regret in her life. There are fears and wounds and secrets. So like all of us, this unidentified woman has a past. And if you study the history of the text, and, and I admit I've preached this often in my time, but you read the commentaries and you listen to the interpretations, you generally, it's told, she, she's given, I mean, because it's such a powerful story this way, especially that, that she's given an identity of promiscuity, that she is this deep, dark sinner. But is there really evidence of that? I mean, we, we do have at the very end of the conversation, we find that she's had five spouses and now living unmarried with a sixth man. But it's so easy to take our culture and our understandings and apply that on her but because we forget that in this time of, of, in society, she has very little choice in anything. If she's divorced, it's because the man divorced her, not her divorcing the van. She cannot bring a divorce. Often, though, it's not due to divorce that a woman would be single. It's due to death. So, but regardless, five times she's been left alone. Five times she's had to start over whether by divorce or death. And, and we'll point out, but she's living with someone, well, there's this thing called the Levitian uh, marriage. And we've seen stories of, with Jesus and, and others where the brother marries the widowed wife that has no children. And there's always a chance that he said, I'm not going to marry her, but I'll bring her to my house. So, so here, here's this, all this story and maybe we don't need to know all of that. Maybe we don't need to know fully her history, but, but what we can understand is that she's likely often looked at but not really seen. She's labeled. But as we hear here, she's nameless. She remains unknown. She, except for to Jesus, Jesus knows her. Maybe it's enough, and this is the point for John, is, it, is that she mirrors our own lives. We live in a world full of tensions that we often try to avoid. But sometimes we have to deal with them. We all have a past, and many in our world live in fear of being found out. We, we, it's not just the fear that someone will know the facts, but that they will do so without knowing or seeing us. Without 
knowing us. And deep down, one of the things that we all thirst for, that we hunger for, is to be seen and to be known. So maybe part of what Jesus is asking of this woman when he asks her, will you give me a drink, isn't so much for the physical water. As it is, he is offering and initiating her to enter into a time of relationship and community, conversation, an opportunity to be loved, to be found out without, and so, but if we're found out and not loved, to be not known leaves us empty. It leaves us to living a dehydrated life where we thirst for more. And what happens is typically we return to the same old wells over and over again. Ones that do not fill us. We all go to wells. For some, it's the relationship well that may or may not include marriage. For some, it's a well of perfection. Some go to the well of hiding and isolation. Others will draw from the well of power and control. And too many will drink from the various wells of addiction. Many, many live at the well of busyness or denial. And we could all name different wells that we tend to go to at different points in which we drink. But day after day, month after month, year after year, we tend to go to the same well to drink. We, and we arrive hoping that this time will be the time that it quenches our thirst. And the reality is that we leave knowing that we will remain thirsty and have to return the next day. Because too, for too long we have drunk from the well that never satisfies. The well that can never satisfy. But here's the thing. Jesus offers a different source. The reference to living water that Jesus uses, much like in, in talking about birth to Nicodemus, is a play on the word. In, in the Greek, uh, this word for living water is, is also reference to, to flowing water, like a spring that, that moves instead of being just still. And so like Nicodemus, who was really unable to look beyond the physical to the spiritual. And, and in even the disciples later on in this passage, their misunderstanding of what Jesus is referring to as food. The woman here first understands Jesus to, to be referring to this well that he's sitting on. He's sitting there and, and he asks from it. So how is he going to give her anything to drink if he doesn't even have a bucket? But unlike Nicodemus, who doesn't seem to move beyond his confusion, this woman continues to engage. She continues to respond. She asks for the water. 
And yeah, maybe it's because she didn't want to have to keep going and carrying water. That's the physical understanding, but I think there's more to it. She asked for this water realizing that it's not ordinary water, but still fully not understanding the implications of what she's asking. But the different source that Jesus is offering is himself. It's the well that fully cleanses. It's the well that fully satisfies. It's, it's more than just the well in which, you know, that we just have to go to just to survive. It's the well in which new life and new possibilities continue to spring forth. It's the well that frees us from the patterns and habits that keep us as thirsty people. This is the well that the Samaritan woman found that day. She intended to go to the same old well that she had gone to for so many years. The well that her ancestors and their flocks had drunk by. But today, today will be the day that her life is forever changed. Jesus holds before her two realities of her life. The reality of what is and the reality of what can be. And so in the midst of this conversation, and, and yeah, she keeps bringing up, well, your people say this and my people say this and, and this and that. And, and he says, so why don't you do this? Go get your husband and we'll continue this conversation. And she states, well, I don't have one. And he says, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. It's not necessarily a statement of condemnation, though. It is a statement of what is. Unlike the woman that is brought before him, committed in adultery, he doesn't condemn her, and he doesn't say, go and sin no more. But in her words, he is telling her everything that she has ever done. He knows her. She is fully known and fully seen. Because Jesus is interested more than in her future than her past. He, he wants to satisfy her thirst more than just judge her history. He knows her. He, he looks beyond what she has been or is named as and sees a woman dying of thirst, a woman thirsting to be loved, to be seen, to be accepted, to be included, to be forgiven, to be known. And because he understands that her thirst will never be quenched by the external wells of this life, and neither will ours, Jesus declares, everyone who continues to drink from this well and this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. This is the living water of new life, of eternal life, of new possibilities and the freedom from the past. This living water flows from Jesus himself. 
For For the Samaritan woman, it becomes a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And as a result, she discovered within herself the interior well that the Holy Spirit flows from. And it leaves, and, and as a result, she, she leaves her water jar behind and heads back into town, not to escape the conversation, but in fact, what she, what, as we follow the story, she becomes, in her, in, even without fully understanding everything, she becomes a well for which Christ's life flows to others. She goes into town and declares a question. Could this be? For he is a prophet that knows everything that I've done. And for us this morning, it's not enough just to hear her story. It's it's not enough just to believe her testimony. But we each must come to the well of Christ's life and ask to receive it. Or we're going to continue to return to the dry wells of this life. We have to, you know, if if we do not come to Christ and ask, we're going to continue to live a life of thirsty, unsatisfying repetition. So this morning, I want to ask you a simple question. What's the source of the well that sustains your life? What is it that you continue to go to in hopes that it's going to quench your thirst? How much longer are you going to carry the water jars back and forth that will never satisfy Because there's another well, one that promises life, one which you are known and loved, one that never runs dry, but instead that you will find life overflowing. And Jesus offers each of us to come to. Come to the well of Christ's life, Christ's redemption, Christ's forgiveness, Christ's love. Christ's presence. Come to the well that is Christ himself and he offers of you to drink deeply. We don't need to sip, but to take in his life that you would fully experience life as a result. And as we look at the story, this woman makes no verbal acceptance of what Jesus has declared, but she, like many disciples before and many after, she leaves her earthly responsibilities. It doesn't say that she she finished her job and took the jar home. It says that she leaves her jar there and runs into town to share her experience. She becomes an apostle to that village of the truth of who Jesus is. She becomes a declare of the life of Christ. Of the only one who can truly fulfill 
Because one of the things we really, if, if we start to fully understand this text, is, it, it tells us is that it's not about what we know. Because she was spouting facts left and right. It's about who we know. It's about having an encounter with Jesus, experiencing the light of his truth and love, shining in on our past and understanding that out of forgiveness that he offers, we have a future. And then in response, that we'd have the courage to drop anything that isn't him. And that we would become witnesses to his abundant grace that flows out of us. It's not about adopting a new religion. It's not about checking marks. It's about living into a relationship that God desires to have with each and every one of us. The only God. Not the supposed not the things of this world that we go to over and over, but that we would have a relationship with the one and only God. And it has to begin with us asking. Christ has already offered it. It's our job to receive it. The gift is free. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to earn it. It's all there because he fully has given of himself on the cross. That if we would receive him, if that we would believe in his sacrifice, we would have eternal life. The Holy Spirit is already moving in your life. It's will you allow him to take over. Who will be Lord of your life? The wells of this world or the one true well? That is abundant life. Now, this woman, I I don't believe she has it all figured out at the time. But notice that 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 doesn't stop her from going and sharing with others what she has found. This is the longest dialogue in all of the Gospels, is this story in this conversation between this unnamed woman and Jesus. She demonstrates what can happen when we actually engage in conversation and questions about our faith. The woman at the well shows us that faith isn't about having all the answers. It's about trusting the source. And then in response to the new life that we find that we give our life fully to Christ and continue to let him mold us and live through us, and that we invite then others to come and see. Come and see. Because I once was, but now I am. That becomes our simple testimony. That for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It doesn't say that whoever purchases, earns. It just says simply, believes in him will not perish but will have ever life everlasting life that we will find true freedom from the sources of this world to live into what he has already offered us 
But first we must ask. Then we must receive. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful today that God, I can remember several times where I've realized I need you. And now, God, every day, I completely am dependent on you. I've sought the world and its answers, but I know that it never satisfies. And so, Lord, we come to you today, the true living water, the true overflowing source through your Holy Spirit that came through your Son. Lord, we may not always have it all figured out, but may we trust you. May we come to you. May we confess our sins, our our sins of abandoning the living water and instead trying to dig our own cisterns that never hold. May we confess our sins and acknowledge the gift that you have offered us. That we would be forgiven. That we can have eternal life. But may we let it not be just a a one-time thing, but understand that we continue to devote our lives to you. That out of that, we would share the good news with others. That I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That your grace continues each and every day. That your love for us is complete. That we are fully known by you. And for this we give you thanks. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.